Catholic commentary. Spiritual warfare. Stay ready so you don't have to get ready. Jesus 911. Good morning, Jesus 911. I'm Virgin Most Powerful Radio. My name is Ruben Nava. I am a one-man car today. My partner Jesse will be out. Uh, he had a, a doctor's appointment that he just could not miss. And um, so our prayers are with him. Make sure that, uh, that his condition is is improved. And as you know, you heard the other day that he says he is getting better. But uh, we want to still keep him in our prayers. And we need him out here. He's on the front lines. And uh, today uh, we've got a good show. We're going to talk about some interesting topics Um we're going to go over some of the myths about the Council of Trent, myths and facts. Um, and we'll be talking about Abraham Lincoln, uh, the side you probably have never heard about, about uh, him being a father. And and then the last two segments, we'll be talking about Freemasonry and the Knights of Columbus. You know, have they been compromised? Uh, you know, that's might not be a popular subject amongst some of our listeners, but... Um, we're just going to be reporting what, uh, we, uh, what we, what we've learned and, uh, I'll have a guest with us at that point. We'll be calling in to talk about that. So I hope you're all doing well. I hope uh, that, uh, you know, this month, the month of the precious blood that, uh, we are uh, staying in a state of grace. We're praying and, um, you know, just making good use of our time because after all, you know that the life is short, and um, you know eternity is forever. So we we need to to know that uh, we have, you know, but one one soul to save, as Saint Therese of Avila used to say. You have one soul to save. So uh, let's get into this. The Council of Trent. Now I don't know if you have ha- had any uh, conversations with, you know, your um, with non Catholics and. Um, and and it's very rare that they'll bring up the Council of Trent just because it had to be a it would have to be like an intellectual conversation and and, uh, and not too many uh, conversations go this deep but there are there are some uh, some myths that have come out of the from the the Protestant uh, revolt and uh, they've carried over so we're gonna we're gonna kind of uh, go through this and and to dispel some of these rumors and, and state the facts. So, uh, one, the one, the one time I heard somebody bring up the council of Trent, it was from a Protestant who was saying that, you know, you had the council of Trent so you could change church, church teachings because Martin Luther, um, exposed it. And, uh, so, and that's not the case, you know, the, the, the teachings have never changed. But there were some, you know, there were some um, corruption going on. There were some things that that needed to be changed in terms of application to the the rules and the laws that were already on the books, and and so that's what what was done. So um, the article it, it comes it, it says that the 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 last ecumenical councils, Trent, Vatican One, Vatican Two applied themselves to clarifying the mystery of the faith and undertook the necessary reforms for the good of the church. Solicitous for the continuity with apostolic tradition. And that was from Pope um, uh, John Paul II uh, in his discourse in October of 1998. And 
So in the middle of the 16th century, the Catholic Church was in need of reform and renewal, and while the Church acknowledged these problems and had begun reforms, the corrective actions were not quick enough to, or deemed serious enough to stem large numbers of Catholics from leaving the Church. And um, Martin Luther's revolt and, and the subsequent Protestant uh, revolution in the, uh, the mid-1500s they accelerated the reforms, and that were, they were eventually realized through the Council of Trent. And uh, this council, the 19th Ecumenical Council in Church History, not only dealt with corruption, but more importantly, effectively refuted the heretical teachings and anti-Catholic attacks launched by Protestants. So, but very few councils have had the impact, the long-term impact uh, on defining and reforming the, the Catholic Church as the Council of Trent had. And uh, the, Trent was chosen after several uh, different sessions. They, they, they decided, let's do it in, in Trent. And the council lasted for 18 years. And uh, the bishops were in session for just a little more than three years. Of course, the council was not intended to spread over 18 years. But the work of the bishops was interrupted by plague, wars, d- the deaths of four popes, and a lack of interest from Pope Paul IV, 1555 to 1559, who thought he could achieve reforms without the council. Uh, So one long-running myth claims that the popes of the 16th century, fearing a loss of prestige and power, resisted calling a general council to deal with the church abuses and corruption. While the 15th and 16th century popes were indeed cautious, Pope Paul III, 1534 to 1549, tried three times to... Convoco, church-wide council, his efforts were repeatedly stymied by political squabbles and unenthusiastic support from European monarchs and princes. So, in uh, December 1545, the council was finally opened, and um, they started their discourse. And um, here's the first myth. Trent ended the practice of indulgences. Remember, that was uh, one of Martin Luther's big... um, complaints and uh you know on his 95 thesis when he posted that up on the on the church doors um one of them was this indulgence thing so the fact is the practice of indulgences was not ended it continues today and is defined in the current catechism of the catholic church numbers 1471 to 1484 the 25th session of Trent affirmed church authority to issue indulgences and condemn those who assert that they, the indulgences, are useless or who deny the church has the power to grant them. The council did eliminate the misuse of the so-called selling of indulgences, which Martin Luther and others found repugnant. Well, because that was that was not right. They say there was, there was an abuse going on there. So you couldn't buy as most of you know how indulgences work, you know, um, we, we we ask for indulgences each day. I know that when I wake up in the morning, I kiss my scapular, and there's an indulgence there just by kissing it. But you have to ask for the indulgence. You have to ask, Lord, help me. And I say this before, at the beginning of the day, Lord, help me to receive all the indulgences that it's possible for me to receive today. And... Um, so that was squared away. And then you have the, the question about Trent adding seven books to the Old Testament. Now, this is just, you know, someone who's saying this is just, uh, is gonna, uh, he's trying to, 
bring up something that is just ridiculous. Um, beginning in the fourth century, this is the fact. There was churchwide consensus that the Old Testament contained 46 books. That number of books is the, identified in the ancient Alexandrian, the Christian list of scriptures, as opposed to the Palestinian, the Jewish list of uh, that has fewer books. The decision to favor the Alexandrian list was subscribed at the Council of Hippo in 393 and reaffirmed at the Council of Carthage, 397. Just uh, on a side note, these two councils were smaller in nature and are not listed among the church's 21 ecumenical councils. So then Luther, his followers, translated the Bible into German, and they left out the books of Tobit, Jude, Judith, First and Second Maccabees, Wisdom, Sirach, and um, and uh, Baruch, as well as parts of Daniel and Esther. And so Protestants also made changes to the New Testament text, which, like the Old Testament omissions, conflicted with their beliefs. Uh, we, the, mo- the most obvious one is this, you know, Second Maccabees, where it, it were, it's clear teaching on purgatory. I believe it's um, 1243 to 46 in Second Maccabees, where it talks about it's a holy and wholesome thought to pray for the dead that they may be loose from their sins, a clear reference to purgatory. And so that didn't go over well with Luther. And um, and besides the, that, that Jewish, that Palestinian list of books, the Jews no longer had authority. Their, their power was gone once the church came in, the, and the, the church was the New Jerusalem. And and so they, you're you're trying to take uh, a council in about the year 100 from the Jews and, and they couldn't find some of those books. They couldn't find, they're trying to recapture all their books in Hebrew. And they, they claim that they, they couldn't find those in, in uh, the Hebrew. But I know that uh, once I, bl- I believe it was in the forties of the 1940s, when the Dead Sea Scrolls came, uh, they, they found these, these, these scrolls in the Dead Seas um, that, kind of clarified some of it because we, some of the parts of those books were found in Hebrew. So uh, that's not going to work for them, that argument. Um, the next myth, the Council of Trent directed Catholics not to read the Bible. And obviously this is not true. The bishops, they confirmed that the Latin Vulgate Bible in use by Christians for over a thousand years was the correct version for Catholics to use. And it's true that the church Fathers at Trent were concerned about the numerous new translations of Scripture that were filled with errors and misinformation and lacked proper and authentic notes. Consequently, they did mandate, they did mandate that only with permission of the Pope could versions other than the Vulgate be writ be read. And I would add that, you know, Bibles were very um, hard to get to come by. I mean, only the rich could afford them. And then with the invention of the printing press by a German Catholic, Johannes Gutenberg, that was the first book that was mass-produced, and it was called the Gutenberg Bible in 1455. So obviously more books and Bibles were were being produced. So then it became a little easier for people to get their hands on them. So that is is one, uh, one fallacy. So the church just didn't want you to read the bad Bible. They weren't telling Catholics not to read any Bible. They still, the Latin Vulgate was still the Bible of the church. Anyway, we'll be right back. I'll finish this up. There's only a couple more things and I will talk about Honest Abe. We'll be right back. We'll change that down.
now. Back to Jesus 911. If this call is not an emergency, dial 888-526-2151. Jesus 911. One man car. I'm 10-8 for Jesus, and uh, my partner is not with us today. Jesse Romero, he'll be back tomorrow. And um, anyway, we're talking, we were talking about the Council of Trent and some of the myths and the facts that have come out. And uh, I'm just going to probably just go over a couple more, and then I'm going to get into a story about uh, Abraham Lincoln. And so one of the, one of the, the um, myths was the Council of Trent acknowledged that women, that, that women have souls. And the fact is that, you know, most far, that's the most far-fetched um, of any of the myths associated with the council. The, that women have souls was never questioned by the church, nor was it addressed by the bishops at Trent. And this wild accusation, it seems to have its roots in St. Gregory of Tours, the, the, the book History of the Franks, book uh, 8, chapter 20. This, this history records that the Synod of... Um, Macon in uh, 528, one of the bishops questioned whether the Latin word homo or man, as used in the Old Testament, includes both male and female. Uh, you know, because when you go back to the, to the writings of the uh, Scripture, when they say brothers, it could be brothers and sisters, you know, hey, these are my brothers, and, and it include both of them. Um, and it's the same thing here. The issue was clarified that indeed women are included in the term. There was never an official canon or decree released, and whatever was discussed had nothing to do with or whether or not women have a soul. And in the 17th century, anti-Catholics attempted to distort the discussion at Macon and publicly claimed that the Macon bishops had formally addressed, even voted, as to whether or not women have a soul. Through the years, this myth has been exacerbated and skewed so as to connect it with the Council of Trent. Even today, some internet sites claim that the church once debated whether or not women have souls. So look at what's going on now with the left. They can't even define what a woman is. They won't even say it, you know. Um, and if you uh, if you look at Webster's, apparently they've changed the definition of a woman. They're calling it, they're calling it uh, the opposite of a man. So what's happening with women? Where are all our, our, you know, the feminists that just should be really upset about that? And this is what's going on in our world. We got a Supreme Court judge that uh, refuses to define what a woman is. It's just, uh, it's ridiculous if you ask me. Anyway, uh, maybe I'll just read this last one. Trent resulted in a rigid church, one that lacks both diversity and stymies fresh ideas. The fact is that the bishops at Trent, like all the Catholic bishops, saw themselves as guardians of the deposit of faith, the faith of Jesus Christ. What was true when Jesus walked the earth was true in the 16th century and is true today. And the church makes no apologies for that position. Since the opening session of Trent, there have been 44 popes. Well, this is a couple of years old, so uh, we've, we've had a couple more. Each with his own perspective, each with his own administration, each with his own ideas, but none have broken with the teachings of Jesus. And uh, we're kind of treading on... Um, some rough ground here with uh, our current pope. So, anyway, the some of the things that, that came out of Trent they clarified, uh, but did not change the Catholic teachings. They make, they did make many lasting reforms in the uh, in the organization and the administration of the church. These reforms included ending the practice of simony, nepotism, and pluralism. And simony is just uh, where 
you in some churches they were buying and selling something spiritual. It's what simony is. And so if a, if a priest became a bishop by paying the bribe, that would be an act of simony. Nepotism is the practice among those with power or influence of favoring relatives or friends, especially by giving them jobs. And pluralism, it's a condition or a system in which two or more states, groups, principal sources of authority, etc., coexist, or the practice of holding more than one office or church benefits at a time. So that was uh, that was eliminated. And um, they also uh, required strict discipline within religious orders, placing monasteries under the jurisdiction of the bishop rather than the pope. Um, a couple of other things. Uh, giving special attention to the education of the clergy, including the goal of establishing a seminary in every diocese. Man, could you imagine if we had a seminary in every diocese today? We're lucky to have, you know, one in a country, you know, or two in a country. Celibacy was upheld. Bishops were responsible to select and mentor men for the, the priesthood, and those men could not be ordained before age 25. And promoting the development of the Roman Missal to standardize the Mass and a catechism pro- containing a concise summary of Catholic beliefs. And uh, yeah, I do like the fact that uh, Pope St. Pius V and in his uh, document, Quo Primum, and he he canonized the, the traditional Latin Mass and called it the Mass of all time. And so anyway, that's some of the, some of the myths. Uh, if you can go to our show page, you can read the rest of it. I'm going to get into another topic here. Abe Lincoln was a rock star dad. <laughs> And here's his timeless parenting advice. Um, Lincoln was maybe perhaps one of the greatest presidents we've ever had. But we know, do, do we know that Lincoln was a cycle breaker? So what is that cycle breaker? And it, it's, it's not hard to get a little obsessed with Abe Lincoln when you start to learn about his life. Over 15,000 books have been written about him more than any other person in world history with the exception of Jesus himself. There's something about Lincoln that fascinates us. How about a man who went to school for less than a year become such an eloquent writer and brilliant thinker? What led a man who grew up in hand-to-mouth extreme poverty to become an international statesman and leader? How did a man who suffered as he did remain compassionate and gentle instead of angry and bitter? So it goes back to his childhood. He was blessed with a wonderful mother, Nancy, who of whom once he once said, all that I am or hope to be, I owe to my angel mother. But Nancy died when Abraham was just nine, and, and his father was different from Nancy. Thomas Lincoln was harsh, unsympathetic, and often angry. And some writers describe his father as abusive. And during uh, Abraham Lincoln's adolescence, he, when he assumed uh, greater work responsibility, his father abused him, never fully understanding his son's desire to read and learn. So Thomas berated Abraham as lazy and was known to knock him over whenever he caught him reading books. Accordingly, when Thomas Lincoln died in 1851, his son didn't attend the funeral. His his father's hostility to Abraham's education makes it all the more impressive that he was able to educate himself and become a lawyer and politician, but even more amazing is the way he reacted to his father's treatment. So instead of continuing the cycle, which is very much the case in, in today's world. You have some women who are, are, are beaten by their husbands and then, um, or they, they watch that grow up. They watch their father beat their mother. And then they, they in turn go off and marry uh, an abuser themselves. And, and, and the cycle just continues. 
and the kids learn that and they 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 that becomes like a part of life so there's some people who look at that and they said we never had a we never saw a good marriage and so they don't believe in marriage a lot of the young kids you know today are shacking up they don't believe in marriage because they've never seen a good marriage instead of uh, continuing the cycle of abuse lincoln decided to be different to be as different as possible from his father he was what he we today call a cycle breaker a cycle breaker is someone who recognizes harmful or dysfunctional traits that exist in the culture and their family and decides to discard these traits and trade them in for something different. So Ab- Abraham changed the pattern of fatherhood in his family. The younger Lincoln devoted his energy and efforts to becoming a gentle and respectful parent instead. And his wife, Mar- Mary Lincoln, wrote, Mr. L was the kindest, most tender and loving husband and father in the world. Where his father was harsh and punitive, Abraham was gentle and understanding. Where his father rejected his interests, Abraham embraced what his children loved. His law partner, William Herndon, once wrote, He worshipped his children, and what they worshipped he loved, what they loved and hated what they hated. So, very supportive dad, to be sure. Anyway, and his gentle parenting was not permissive. Lincoln was firm in holding boundaries when his children needed his guidance, his, his former law partner and bodyguard reminisced. Mr. Lincoln's fondness for his children knew no bounds. Um, it well nigh broke his heart to use his paternal authority in correcting their occasional displays of temper or insubordination. But when occasion required the sacrifice, he showed great firmness in teaching him the strictest of obedience. So firmness and tenderness, unconditional love and thoughtful respect, these timeless virtues are as important for parents now as they were in the 1800s. And we we can learn from Lincoln how to parent with calmness and authority, remembering that love covers a multitude of sins, 1 Peter 4, 8. Or as Lincoln himself always said, in a sentiment that transcends the centuries, love is the chain whereby to lock a child to its parent. We know Lincoln, the president, and Lincoln, the emancipator. But do we know Lincoln, the cycle breaker? Lincoln, the peaceful parent. As many parents today seek a peaceful and positive parenting style, one that merges gentleness and respect with firm boundaries, perhaps the side of, this side of Lincoln is the one we want to know the most. And it was sad to, to read that um, his youngest son was present when he was executed in the, uh, in the playhouse. And... Uh, Anyway, that's uh, that's very unfortunate. And one of the qualities I like about Lincoln, and this is so this is off the that topic about him being a dad was the one of he was one of the most famous failures with a high influential personality. He is probably the greatest example of persistence on grounds of of his failures. So if you want to learn about somebody who didn't quit, look no further than Lincoln. Born into poverty, Lincoln was faced with defeat throughout his life. He lost eight elections, twice failed in business, and suffered a nervous breakdown. He could have quit many times, but he didn't. And because he didn't quit, he became one of the greatest presidents in the history of our country. Lincoln was a a champion, and he never gave up. Here's a sketch of Lincoln's road to the White House. 1816, his family was forced out of the home. He had to work to support him. 1818, his mother died. 1831, failed in business. 1832, ran for state legislature, lost. 1832, also lost his job, wanted to go to law school, but couldn't get in. 1833, borrowed some money from a friend to begin a business, and by the end of the year, he was bankrupt. He spent the next 17 years of his life paying off this debt. In 1834, ran for state legislature again, won. 
1835, was engaged to be married. Sweetheart died and heart was broken. 1836, had a total nervous breakdown and was in bed for six months. 1838, sought to become Speaker of the State Legislature. He was defeated. 1840, sought to become elector. Defeated. 1843, ran for Congress. Lost. 1846, ran for Congress. Again, this time he won, went to Washington and did a good job. 1848, ran for re-election to Congress and lost. 1849, sought the job of land officer in his home state, was rejected. 1854, ran for Senate of the United States, lost. 1856, sought the vice presidential nomination at his party's national convention and got less than 100 votes. And then in 1858, he ran for U.S. Senate again. Again, he lost, probably his last failure. And in 1860, he was elected president of the United States because by then he was already uh, he was already showing um, what he thought about slavery. And uh, so after matters most is how many times you it's not how many times you fail, but how many times you get up, you got to keep trying. And uh, that's a, that's a very good success principle. So I love that about Abraham Lincoln. All right. We're coming up on our next break. We will be right back. Don't change that dial. We're talking about Freemasonry. Now, back to Jesus 911. If this call is not an emergency, dial 888 526 2151. We are back, Jesus 911. If you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. Uh, we're switching gears and going to be talking about the Knights of Columbus and Freemasonry. And uh, for this uh, for this last two segments, we have a, a friend of the show. Um, we'll just we'll just call him Hector. Well, that's that's his name, but he's going to be coming on. Uh, Hector, are you with us? Yes. Hey, Ruben. How's it going? Good morning. Good morning. Yeah. For duty. <laughs> All right. You know, Hector's. Uh, you you take a, a, a interest in in Freemasonry, and you're you're quite knowledgeable about the subject. So I wanted to have you on board here. Uh, you uh, you sent us this article, which is even that's even better, and um, it's the title of it is "Our Relations with the Knights of Columbus," and I want to preface it by saying, you know, um, this is not uh, is not a jab at all our knights. In fact, I'm a, I'm a knight and. Actually, just a fairly new one, but nevertheless, it's uh, there's a lot of good knights, and and they may not even be aware of what what we're going to be talking about about the Freemasons. So um, I'll just kind of just go ahead and tell where. Why don't you go ahead and just kind of read that first paragraph, uh, Hector? To tell us so that gives the contents, the, co- the context of sure. what people are going to where this article came sure. from. Absolutely, Ruben. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm no, by no means I'm an expert, but I do a lot of research. Um, there's actually far more versed people than I am on this subject. Um, but yeah, so uh, it says this short talk is a, a is an address given by the Worshipful Brother C.C. Uh, Buddy Faulkner to more than a thousand Masons assembled at Murat Temple in Indianapolis, Indiana. Um, uh, it was dated January 12, 1974, at the Founders Day communication of the Grand Lodge of Indiana. Uh, Brother Faulkner is a past master of Mystic Thai Lodge number 398 in Indianapolis and is a well-known former executive secretary of the Indiana Demole Foundation and a former assistant grand secretary of Indiana. His gracious permission to publish his address in this form is sincerely appreciated. 
Yeah. So he writes this letter to, to talk about, about his, the, the relationships with the, the Knights of Columbus. And, um, he said it's insignificant in that it means to us that the former relationship that existed for many years, nearly a century now is evol- evolving into one that is new and different and exciting. And that the leadership of our fraternity in Indiana considers that new relationship to, to be not only noteworthy, but important. And what he's talking about is that, so this was 1974, by then, Vatican II had already occurred, and they uh, had taken out the condemnation of Freemasonry. And uh, even in the new code of canon law, it's not in there, the eight, 1983 code. And so that's what he's, he's trying to foster this relationship. And uh, later on, we'll talk about what the ultimate goal of, of Freemasonry is. But um, meanwhile, we'll just kind of go ahead and... Uh, where did the where did the Knights of Columbus start, uh, Hector? Uh, I know you used to be a knight. Well, they were. Yeah, I I, I quit the Knights a couple of years back. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, not, nothing related to this, but it was um, it was founded in 1882 by Father uh, Michael J. McGivney. I, th- I believe he's a blessed now. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a Roman Catholic priest here in, uh, in the U.S. Um, he was kind of trying to copy the guild structure that he saw before back uh, that he studied about. I'm obviously I'm assuming. Uh, back in the 1700s and the 18, early 1800s, um, all that was taken away uh, back like when the Freemasons actually took over France and England. Um, what the guild structure was, was a way of a, keeping um, members of the Catholic faith within uh, non-secret organizations and also a way of helping people uh, who lost their loved ones or who needed help with expenses. Um, the guild structure was pretty much made to um, it, it was probably the, the the closest we've had to uh, the social doctrine of Jesus Christ here on earth, where they would care for one another. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, they didn't believe in usury. They believed in in training up apprentices that were, whether you were a merchant, a, ma- a, a mason, you know, you're actually building, uh, you know, the, the the cathedrals in Europe and stuff. That you always had a few people, and you taught them how to build their own business, and you know, you you always that's you're teaching people how to fish, right? Mm-hmm. So. What uh, Father McGivney saw here is that a lot of people were going into these, you know, disastrous working conditions and, and these conditions that, that cost the, the, the lives of a lot of immigrants, a lot of the, like the Irish and Italian, and a lot of the immigrants that were coming from Europe, uh, from the old country into the new country. And, you know, some of their, their families were ended up, you know, being widowed. So, you know, it, it was started at a, you know, at a good cause, at a charity. And um, uh, like I said, his his purpose was to provide, you know, some sort of uh, monetary um, help when if the, the the head of household died mm. or if they had a sick child and they couldn't afford expenses. So it was kind of a way of helping one another. Yeah. Um, and that's how it pretty much started. And and that's uh, and that was uh, Father McGivney's um, was was his goal, obviously, to help the families. Is that when the um, the life insurance became uh, came about or did that come about later? Do you know? I think that that came about later. Yeah. Uh, that came about later, but that 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 kind of uh, started back when we started going off the you know the gold, the the gold, the gold standard and stuff back. Yeah, the gold standard. So um, that they needed they needed you know some of the banksters trying to took took away you know a lot of that benefit in the you know during the crash of the 1920s, um, and they started you know relying on promissory notes that you know promise to pay, promise to pay. 
Um, and in order to keep up with that, since there's obviously a lot of the personnel were not as wealthy as they would be uh, back then, uh, you know, given the times, they were, they were, uh, you know, that's when they, the whole insurance type of stuff started, uh, if I recall correctly. But um, but it was usually, you know, it was being run by kind of like a mafia style type of project, right? Um, to try to to try to you know get money from the people and at the same time guarantee them something, but uh, you know that's that's a lot to get into. That's a couple shows of worth of material there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so pretty much you know before we continue, just wanted to touch upon how he says he was part of the Demole, uh, the Demole Foundation in Indiana. So just um, I don't know if you recall a couple maybe a couple months ago, I sent you and Jesse. Uh, some information on the Demole Masons, where they're like they're the prime real estate where all the, a lot of the pri- uh, Planned Parenthoods reside. So just keep that in mind mm. later on. Good point. That's a good point. I had forgotten yeah. about that. Uh, so then later on in April of 1738, Pope Clement XII issued a prohibition against Freemasonry. He placed uh, well from 1738 until several years ago the the Roman Church, and this is this is the article. This is the letter that is penned by this Freemason. So he's saying the Roman Church prohibited its members from belonging to organizations considered by the Church to be secret societies or free associations, and that prohibition extended to include a number of organizations, and specifically included Freemasonry. And there's been many, that, no no less than eight papal bulls issued against Freemasonry, together with nine papal encyclicals on the same sh- subject. So that's a lot of writing uh, the the Church has uh, come down on Freemasonry. So the, the most recent bull was proclaimed in 1884, two years after the founding of the Knights of Columbus in the United States. Four of the encyclicals were issued during and after 1882, and the most recent being in 1890. Those pronouncements from the seat of power in, in the Roman Church had a long-term influence over relationships with the Knights and Freemasonry. And um, mm-hmm. there has been a lot of hostility between uh, then and now and the philosophy of attitude or the ritual of symbolic Freemasonry, even the slightest hostility toward the Catholic Church or to any of its members or any of its organizations, including the Knights of Columbus. So, and from its beginnings, in the Middle Ages, it's been a landmark of ancient craft masonry to forbid lodges and masons from interfering with churches, government, and other organizations and societies to discuss their affairs or to act officially concerning them. So here he's saying, yeah, we're we're not going to interfere with anything the church is trying to do. Uh, we're gonna, you know, let them be, and then uh, it says Freemasonry that reason never has been in controversy with the Roman Church, nor has the craft taken official recognition of any of the pronouncements against it by church or anyone else. So he's, you know, he's trying to get in good with the Freemasons. Um, when you when you see groups like this, Hector, they do they they ingratiate themselves into their organization because there's always an end goal in mind. You know that that it's. I you know hate to sound negative, but there, there's a, a ulterior motives in many cases. You know, I'm not saying this guy in, in particular, but uh, the Masons go way back. And um, oh yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. They, they even, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. So no, I mean that's obviously he he's either lying or he's conflating the, the article to try to say that well, we're not. We don't mean any harm towards anybody, but I mean we know from documents like the Alta Vendita and stuff that's that's not you know that states otherwise. So mm-hmm. obviously he's he's a he's either you know playing the ignorance card or he just really doesn't know himself either. But right, right. I kind of doubt it. 
Um, so there have been, uh, through the years, members of the Roman Church who have been raised to Freemasonry to sublime degree, both in Indiana in, and in other jurisdictions in this nation around the world. Uh, he points out Rudy uh, Rudyard Kipling, Freemason, reminisce, reminiscing about the brotherhood and the fellowship in his mother lodge in Indiana. And uh, he wrote a poem about that, but uh, it's uh, kind of incoherent. But he does mention that there was a guy, <laughs> several guys from uh, different different faith, uh, Jews, uh, uh, Muslims, and, and, and one particular guy who was a, a Roman Catholic. So, you know, the Roman Catholics, you know, way back when they knew, they knew that they couldn't be part of a, a lodge. And just like today, we have Catholics that know that our stance on abortion, and yet they still side with the abortionists, you know, killing babies. And, and so it's, you know, it's our fallen nature, and there's going to be people that are, that follow the faith and to a T or as best they can, and and there's others that just uh, they do their own thing. You know, it's 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 my way or the highway, and uh, you know, like uh, like Terry always sings the uh, Frank Sinatra song, <laughs> I, "I did it my way." You know, instead of <laughs> so, um, anyway. Uh, there's different. I mean, the, the article goes goes on to talk about um, anything else in the, in the article that you want to point out, and then we'll get into what some of the condemnations are in the Alta Vendita and sure. what came out of that. And, okay. Sure. Well, a lot of the similar. Oh, oh we're coming up. Okay. Okay. On the next uh, sub, on the next side of the break, we're gonna we're gonna kind of just kind of wrap up this uh, article. Anything other big takeaways from it, and then. We'll get into what uh, some of the condemnations are from Leo the Thirteenth and others. Okay, coming right back. We'll change that dial. Jesus nine one one. Now, back to Jesus nine one one. If this call is not an emergency, dial eight 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 five two six two one. We are back. Two-man car now. We've got a ride-along. we got um, Hector joining us, a uh, longtime friend of the show, and um, very helpful to uh, VNPR, and um, you can you can find him here at, at all of the conferences that we put on. So he's also a very good friend of mine. And um, Hector, any closing thoughts on that letter that this that was penned by this uh, Freemason? Well, if you kind of read the, the, the remaining part of the letter, it's like he's trying to build like, you know, bridge of ecumenism yeah. where, you know, he says that nobody's really in control. But in the end, you know, we know that's not true. And you know, that's false ecumenism, obviously. And, and if you kind of continue reading it mm-hmm. and you read the, the papal encyclical that came out two years ago from the Vatican, Fratelli Tutti, it kind of has the same tone, same undertone, same underpinnings here and there. So there's a lot of uh, stuff that, that uh, that's very telling as to how this has been infiltrated into our mm. um into our into our church so um it's, it's like i I, re- I read the article several times and i, I you know had a, i have a lot of takeaways obviously on it um but um it's obviously that he's you know he's actually saying that we you know we're not um we're not here to try to subvert you or convert you and stuff like that and <laughs> usually uh, i mean we've seen that in the past i mean even with um I think it was um, Emperor Justinian, something like that, where even he had, you know, he had pagans, you know, had, as his guards, but he was the one that was in control, right? He was the in charge of the Vikings. So 
you know, I'm not saying that you can't go and evangelize them or talk to them or or do that, but you got to be very careful. I mean, you got to make sure that you're the one in control and that your theology is the winning strategy. That's what real ecumenism is, right? That's what something that that uh, uh, Vatican II failed, and you know, we actually know that. Yes, you know, Vatican II has been probably their their coming out party. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just I mean, just uh, Hector. We, um, you know, th- when you when you see what they're doing, the Masons with the Knights, it kind of reminds me of. Uh, of the intentions of of some Protestant Bible studies, uh, where where when you as a Catholic are invited, the goal is to con- convert you to the to their way of thinking uh, or their exegesis of Scripture, and um, they know many Catholics are ripe for the taking, being ignorant of their faith and the Bible. And I know I've been to several Bible studies in the past uh, with friends, you know, good friends, who have a you know a good good heart and. But you could see that ultimately their goal was to dissuade me and and bring me to their point of view on on what the scriptures were talking about, and uh, didn't like they didn't like so much when uh, I would point out facts that they had never seen uh, in, in scripture, and so the Masons maybe not at the local level, but but certainly in the upper ranks of Freemasonry, their goal is to subvert the church and. So that's like you said. You have to be careful when you're dealing with these these groups. And I would just stand clear of them. There's you know there's no point. There's no need to be going into Masonic lodges and uh, no no not at all. Yeah no not not at all. I mean but I mean you have to call them out. You have to call a spade a spade. And you know it doesn't matter you know which uh, Catholic personality or whatever might be going in and saying or or doing stuff, but. I mean, like St. John Christensen said, right? We must not mind insulting men if by respecting them we offend God. Mm-hmm. So we need to, we really need to take a start, hard stance against it and, you know, distance ourselves from this, you know, pray for them and hope for that, the, you know, you know, that, you know, there's actually a prayer, um, I, I think it was penned by Maximilian Colby, right? Based on, you know, to convert the, the, the Masons. Um, I, I think it's, it's part of the, 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 the American seed without sin, right? Pray for us for, you know, um, pay for us who have recourse to thee and those who do not rec- have recourse to thee, including the Freemasons and those in charge to your care. So, I mean, yeah, we have to pray for them. They're, they're our enemies, but, you know, we always, we wish them that they convert and see the true light, you know, become devout Catholics and fervent Catholics and that become, you know, they come to the full truth and, you know, repent of that, of all, all that garbage that they believe in. Because in the end, it's it's nothing but, you know, huge disguise for, you know, Luciferianism, Satanism. So they all work together. As you can see, I sent you some of the pictures that they have the whole, the whole emblem structure. And even one of them was like the, one of the satanic clubs, you know, in, in that same thing. So this is part of the, the brotherhood. Yeah. Part of the brotherhood. There was all these different associations, one of them being the Knights of Columbus. And then uh, mm-hmm. the uh, tradition and action group, and they, they penned a, a, a letter, and it was entitled, Are the Knights of Columbus Part of Freemasonry? And it just goes on to, to talk about um, how these, these different uh, grandmasters from the various, um, you know, the, the various uh, Freemasonry groups, they're associating with the Knights of Columbus, and they're doing uh, charity work together with cancer survivors and the American Cancer Society Walk for Life. And uh, so they're doing things together. And that in and of itself is 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 not bad. We're not con- you know criticizing that, but um, you know it's it's giving the the appearance to Catholics that all's well, all's well with the these uh, Freemasons, and 
And I bet you since, you know, what's since 63, since Vatican II began, uh, it's almost 60 years. So most Catholics don't even know about the condemnations of um, Freemasonry. So let's kind of talk about that. Um, Leo the Thirteenth he describes and condemns Freemasonry, and, and he was just repeating the warnings of previous popes, Clement the the Twelfth in seventeen thirty eight, Benedict the Fourteenth in seventeen fifty one, Pius the Twelfth in eighteen twenty one, Leo the Twelfth in eighteen twenty six, Pius the Eighth in eighteen twenty nine, Gregory the Sixteenth in eighteen thirty two, and Pius the Ninth in eighteen forty six and eighteen sixty five. And on four other occasions, and then after Leo the Thirteenth, Saint Pius the Tenth in nineteen eleven confirmed this condemnation. Altogether, Leo the Thirteenth spoke out five different times against Freemasonry, but especially in the encyclical Humani Genus. I think everybody should read that one. Uh, oh yes. And all these popes say that a Catholic cannot be a Mason, and so they've just condemned it so hard, so frequently that. Um, you have to you have to give pause and say, man. Now, as if nothing's wrong, we you can you can join these secret societies and and um, it, it used to be that it was automatic excommunication, and after Vatican II they lifted that, and so you can't something's wrong. I mean, it's something smelly in Denmark. I mean, you you're looking at what the church has said <laughs> so forcefully, and then all of a sudden it's gone. You know. What's true yesterday is true today, you know. Um, so do you want to uh, talk a little bit about this um, on Leo the 13th, what he was talking about, how, where he talks about a, a, a good tree cannot produce a bad fruit? Or... It, sure. It says a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor a bad tree produce good fruit. Now the Masonic sect produces fruits that are pernicious and of the bitterest savor. Uh for from what we have above most clearly shown, their ultimate purpose forces itself into view, namely the utter overthrow of, of that whole religious and political order of the world which Catholic teaching has produced, and the substitution of a new state of things in accordance with their ideas, of which the foundations and laws shall be drawn from mere naturalism. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he goes on to say, we have briefly given their chief dogmas are so greatly and manifestly at variance with the reason, and nothing can be more perverse. To wish to destroy the religion and the church which God himself has established and whose perpetuity he ensures by his protection and to bring back from a lapse of 18 centuries the manners and customs of the pagans is signal folly and audacious impiety. Uh, go ahead, Hector. <laughs> It says, therefore, we wish it to be your your rule first of all to tear away the mass from Freemasonry and to let it be seen as it really is, and by sermons and pastoral letters to instruct the people as to the artifices used by societies of this kind in seducing men and enticing them into their ranks as to depravity of their opinions and wickedness of their acts. As our predecessors have many times repeated, let no man think that he may for any reason whatsoever join the Masonic sect if he values his Catholic name and his eternal salvation as he ought to value them. Let no one be deceived by a pretense of honesty. It may seem to some that Freemasons demand nothing that is openly contrary to religion and morality. Mm. But as a whole, principle and object to the sect lies, of the sect lies in what is vicious and criminal. To join with these men or in any way helped and cannot be lawful. Mm-hmm. 
And then, uh, I know in the last minute we have, um, just want to mention the Alta Vendita. This is uh, the the High Lodge. It was uh, a document that was uncovered by the church and 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 put out in a in a teaching and or, you know and actually in a book. You can get that little uh, it's a little um, small track. And I think everybody should read that the Alta Vendita. And uh, I'll just kind of t- see talk about real quick. Uh, the ultimately, the secret societies must take the first step toward the church and the Pope for uh, for the purpose of vanquishing them. The task we undertake, this is the Freemasons talking, will be not be completed in a day, month, or a year. It may require perhaps even a century. We What we must do is wait for a Pope suitable for our purposes. With such a Pope, we could crush the rock upon which God built his church. We must produce an entire generation worthy of the kingdom we hope for. We must seek the young. Once your good reputation has been established in high schools, universities, and seminaries, the young are secular and the religious will be receptive to our doctrines. When Within a few years, some will be called called upon to to elect a future pope. Are we there now? I mean, that's that's a good question. You know, seeing what the, this pope is doing, you have to believe that, boy, they have they have yeah. met their their pope. This is the pope they that this was the... The Pope that, like Father Dave Nix says, this was their ultimate goal. To Francis was the the result of Vatican II. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And then just one other. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, so just one, just one other thing, and it's just go back on the nights. I mean, uh, the one thing that also just, uh, and I'm not, I'm not trying to discourage anybody from joining or or being part of it or continuing their their stance in it, but you never see them at traditional parishes. So you're talking about the nights. FYI, I mean the nights. Yeah. So you never see them at traditional parishes unless it's a parish that celebrates both the Novus Ordo and the traditional Latin Mass. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's nothing. I'm, I'm like I said, I'm not here to bash anybody, but it's just something for food to first thought that really stuck to me, and just that's what ultimately drew my decision to to leave. Mm, okay. Well, Hector, I appreciate you coming on and and adding your your input to this this conversation and i think uh you know hopefully the uh the audience will if they're not familiar with freemasonry they will begin to delve into it and uh because there's always families that have one or two relatives that they you know they're they think there's nothing wrong with uh with being part of that organization so exactly thank you so much for coming on i uh, appreciate it appreciate your friendship and your patronage to this uh the virgin most powerful and uh you've been listening thank you to- very much yeah, yeah, thanks, Hector. You've been listening to Jesus 911. And if you like what you hear, hit the like button and, um, and share it with others. Okay, we really appreciate that. Uh, stay tuned for Hands On Apologetics with Gary Mashuda from the Midwest Command Center. Gary's always got some terrific guests. Oh, another day is in the books. We will see you tomorrow. God bless you. Keep the faith.